Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your reader, your communicator of the Victorian, your mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black. It is my honor and privilege to serve you in this way. A quick update on my bedraggled dog, Jack-Jack. He didn't make it. That's a lie. He's fine. He is uh, fine. He's sitting by my side. Last time, of course, he was bothered because he'd had some minor surgery and was wearing a plastic ruff about his neck, and he could not make himself comfortable. The ruff is gone. His wounds are healed, and he is currently sitting beside me, his ears flattened a little bit against his head because he is uh, desiring my attention. So when he does that and he kind of looks mournfully at me, he's saying, please, please, please give me some pets. And so with my right hand, I am stroking those velvety black ears of his. And he's now looking at me with some knowledge that I am speaking about him. And I can't tell if it is with resentment or nonchalance that he looks at me. But on to the matter at hand. And the hand in which I am referring to is my left hand, because in that hand, I hold my battered copy of Jude the Obscure. Now, when we last left Jude, he had ripped off his protection. He had ripped off his metaphorical clothing, which is to say he, he had said, fuck this noise to everything. He took all his books, his religious texts, uh, you know, that he had poured over lo these many years that he had devoted every spare farthing to. Is that a coin, a farthing, a farthling? I mean, it's not a British coin, but you know, every spare pence. And, uh, he had dug a little hole, put them in it, burned them because he was like, I can't anymore. I'm done. 
I'm done. I'm a fraud. I'm a hypocrite. I'm not fit to teach religion. I'm not fit to study religion because I'm in love with my cousin and I'm married to another lady. My cousin loves me. I love my cousin and I'm just going to be who I is. So he's burning his, he's burning his shit in a, in a, in a pit and that's it. Even if he throws a fit, even if he has to pop his it, he is done. Finit. So he's taking his books and he's burning them. And then now back to the book. Though he was almost a stranger here now, passing cottagers talked to him over the garden hedge. Oh, remember last time we, we you know, the, the townspeople were talking about him and Sue, you know, the way they do. Burning up your old aunt's rubbish, I suppose. I. A lot gets heaped up in nooks and corners when you've lived 80 years in one house. That's what they're saying. It was nearly one o'clock in the morning before the leaves, covers, and binding of Jeremy Taylor, Butler, Doddridge, Paley, Pusey, Newman, and the rest had gone to ashes. But the night was quiet. And as he turned and turned the paper shreds with the fork... The sense of being no longer a hypocrite to himself afforded his mind a relief which gave him calm. He might go on believing as before, but he professed nothing and no longer owned and exhibited engines of faith, which, as their proprietor, he might naturally be supposed to exercise on himself first of all. In his passion for Sue, he could now stand as an ordinary sinner and not as a whited sepulchre. What's a sepulchre? Statue? Tomb? Wait, hold on. Looking up sepulchre. Hold on, guys. <sighs> it's a... Uh... It's a small monument cut in rock or built of stone in which a dead person is later buried. So I was right. I mean, it is so satisfying to be right. When you think you know something and it turns out you did, God, that's a good feeling. I mean, just the, just the best. Because it allows you to go, uh, see, I told you so. And there's no more satisfying feeling in the world than, see, I told you so. I was right all along. Meanwhile, Sue, after parting from him earlier in the day, had gone along to the station with tears in her eyes for having run back and let him kiss her. <laughs> oh, so she's regretting it. <laughs> Jude's never been happier. And Sue's like, oy vey, what did I do? Jude ought not to have pretended that he was not a lover and made her give way to an impulse to act unconventionally, if not wrongly. She was inclined to call it the latter. Sue's logic was extraordinarily compounded and seemed to maintain that before a thing was done, it might be right to do, but that being done, it became wrong. Or in other words, that things which were right in theory were wrong in practice. I have been too weak, I think. She jerked out as she pranced on, shaking down teardrops now and then. It was burning like a lover's. Oh, it was. And I won't write to him anymore. <laughs> she says this literally every episode. Uh, or at least for a long time to impress him with my dignity. And I hope it will hurt him very much. Expecting a letter tomorrow morning and the next and the next and no letter coming. He'll suffer then with suspense. Won't he? That's all. And I am very glad of it. 
tears of pity for Jude's approaching sufferings at her hands, mingled with those which had surged up in pity for herself. What a bitch. Now, last time, as you recall, I said my sympathies here are entirely with Sue, that she has been right all along. I I literally just said it a second ago. She's been right all along. She's finally come to her senses. She's being who she is. She's acting in the way that she wants to act. She's being the person she always has wanted to be. She's Sue Brighthead, but her rectitude in this situation is maddening. Now that she has gotten Jude to unshackle himself, she is clamping the irons onto her own wrists and blaming him for it. She's the one that led him to freedom, right? And now she's saying, you know, you can leave the prison yard, but I'm going to stay. It's like that show Prison Break where the guy breaks into prison to get his brother out. And then, then they both end up in prison. I never saw that show, but that's the premise. It seemed like a dumb show. So she's saying, I've been too weak, too weak. But no, Sue, you've been so strong this whole time. And you have been guiding Jude in unexpected and annoying ways to that moment, that moment when he had the insight and the fortitude to turn around and look at you and you at he and you ran together. There was swelling cinematic music playing. You planted your kissers right on each other and smooched out there in, in, in the open. All of nature's glories around you. I think there was a little tongue, although it's not mentioned. And you gave yourselves over to it. And in doing so, you transformed your cousin from hypocrite to free man. And it seems as if you have only buried yourself. Well, for shame. For shame, Sue. Then the slim little wife of a husband whose person was disagreeable to her, the ethereal, fine-nerved, sensitive girl, quite unfitted by temperament and instinct to fulfill the conditions of the matrimonial relation with Phillotson, possibly with scarce any man, walked fitfully along and panted and brought weariness into her eyes by gazing and worrying hopelessly. So she has gone from being Sue Bridehead to being Mrs. Phillotson in that moment. Phillotson met her at the arrival station, and seeing that she was troubled, thought that it must be owing to the depressing effect of her aunt's death and funeral. He began telling her of his day's doings and how his friend Gillingham, a neighboring schoolmaster whom he had not seen for years, had called upon him. While ascending to the town, seated on the top of the omnibus beside him, she said suddenly, and with an air of self-chastisement regarding the white road and its bordering bushes of hazel, Richard, I let Mr. Folly hold my hand a long while. I don't know whether you think it wrong. (laughs) So she's just like, God, she's just, she's in the omnibus. She's throwing him under the bus. I mean, I want to love Sue so badly. I really do. But then she does shit like this. He, waking apparently from thoughts of far different mold, said vaguely, Oh, did you? What did you do that for? I don't know. 
He wanted to, and I let him. Well, I hope it pleased him. I should think it was hardly a novelty. <laughs> okay, so this, that's a, that I think is a little dig at Jude and maybe at Sue, where because he had come to the town and he had said, look, are you fooling around with my fiance? And he had said, no, dude, no, absolutely not. When in fact they had spent the night together, I mean, in a kind of chaste way, but still, and he had denied any feelings for her and she for him. And he sort of had taken them at their word and then he ended up marrying her. So maybe he thought all of it was put to bed. So this is a little dig. And he says, I think I, it was hardly a novelty. They lapsed into silence. Had this been a case in the court of an omniscient judge, he might have entered on his notes the curious fact that Sue had placed the minor for the major in discretion and had not said a word about the kiss. Oh, well, that's just, that's just a little omission, right? Well, perhaps she'll fess up. We'll find out in a moment on Obscure. Butcher Box delivers healthy, 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage breed pork right to your door. All Butcher Box meat is free of antibiotics and hormones and humanely raised on open pastures. This month, Butcher Box is offering the ultimate breakfast bundle. This includes two packages of bacon, two pounds of breakfast sausage, all free, in your first box. Their bacon is some of the best bacon you will ever have. It's Whole30 approved, uncured, nitrate, and sugar-free. The sausage is a healthy, authentic version of a classic-style pork sausage, simply seasoned with salt, pepper, and sage. Right now, new members will get two packages of bacon and two pounds of breakfast sausage added to your first box for free. Plus, you will get $20 off your first box. Go now while supplies last, as this is a limited time offer. The wife and I, you know the wife, have actually been discussing doing exactly this, going outside of the big commercial agribusiness meat industrial thing. In fact, I have a friend who swears by it, and she's the one that got me interested in it, in it for the first time. I like the idea that it's outside of the, you know, the grocery store thing. I like that it gets delivered to you. I like that you can customize what you want. Get the ultimate breakfast bundle. That's two packages of bacon, two pounds of breakfast sausage for free in your first box, plus $20 off your first box. Go to butcherbox.com slash obscure or enter promo code obscure. That's butcherbox.com slash obscure or promo code obscure. And we're back. Sue has admitted to her husband that she and Jude, <gasps> I'm gasping for dramatic effect, touched hands. Not lips, just hands. Let us read on. After tea that evening, Phillotson sat balancing the school registers. She remained in an unusually silent 
tense and ruthless condition, and at last, saying she was tired, went to bed early. When Phillotson arrived upstairs, weary with the drudgery of the attendance numbers, it was a quarter to twelve o'clock. Entering their chamber, which by day commanded a view of some thirty or forty miles over the Vale of Blackmoor and even into outer Wessex, he went to the window and pressing his face against the pane, gazed with hard-breathing fixity into the mysterious darkness which now covered the far-reaching scene. Right, what was apparent in daylight is now no longer apparent to Phillotson. He was musing, I think he said at last, without turning his head, that I must get the committee to change the school stationer. All the copy books are sent wrong this time. There was no reply. Thinking Sue was dozing, he went on. And there must be a rearrangement of that ventilator in the classroom. The wind blows down upon my head unmercifully and gives me the earache. <laughs> it gives me the earache. As the silence seemed more absolute than ordinarily, he turned round. The heavy gloomy oak wainscot, which extended over the walls upstairs and down in the dilapidated old grove house, and the massive chimney piece reached to the ceiling, stood in odd contrast to the new and shining brass bedstead and the new suite of birch furniture that he had bought for her, the two styles seeming to nod to each other across three centuries upon the shaking floor. Sue, he said. <laughs> it's spelled S-O-O, -O, so I'm trying to replicate that. Sue, he said, this being the way in which he pronounced her name. She was not in the bed though she had apparently been there, the clothes on her side being flung back. Thinking she might have forgotten some kitchen detail and gone downstairs for a moment to see to it, he pulled off his coat and idled quietly enough for a few minutes. When finding she did not come, he went out upon the landing, candle in hand, and said again, Sue? Yes, came back to him in her voice from the distant kitchen quarter. What are you doing down there at midnight, tiring yourself out for nothing? I am not sleepy. I am reading, and there is a larger fire here. He went to bed. Sometime in the night he awoke. She was not there even now. Lighting a candle, he hastily stepped out upon the landing and again called her name. She answered yes, as before, but the tones were small and confined, and whence they came he could not at first understand. Under the staircase was a large clothes closet without a window. They seemed to come from it. The door was shut, but there was no lock or other fastening. Phillotson, alarmed, went towards it, wondering if she had suddenly become deranged. "'What are you doing in here?' he asked. "'Not to disturb you, I came in here as it was so late. "'But there's no bed, in, is there, and no ventilation. "'Why, you'll be suffocated if you stay all night. "'Oh, no, I think not. Don't trouble about me.' "'But Phillotson seized the knob and pulled at the door.' 
She had fastened it inside with a piece of string which broke at his pole. There being no bedstead, she had flung down some rugs and made a little nest for herself in the very cramped quarters the closet afforded. When he looked in upon her, she sprang out of her lair, great-eyed and trembling. "'You ought not to have pulled open the door,' she cried excitedly. "'It is not becoming in you. Oh, will you go away, please, will you?' She looked so pitiful and pleading in her white nightgown against the shadowy lumber hole that he was quite worried. She continued to beseech him not to disturb her. He said, I've been kind to you and given you every liberty, and it is monstrous that you should feel in this way. Yes, said she, weeping, I know that. It is wrong and wicked of me, I suppose. I am very sorry, but it is not I altogether that am to blame. Who is then? Am I? No, I don't know. The universe, I suppose. Things in general, because they are so horrid and cruel. Well, it is no use talking like that, making a man's house so unseemly at this time of night. Eliza will hear if we don't mind, he meant the servant. Just think if either of the parsons in this town was to see us now. I hate such I hate such eccentricities, Sue. There is no order or regularity in your sentiments. But I won't intrude on you further, only I would advise you to sh- not to shut the door too tight, or I shall find you stifled tomorrow. So she's pulled out Harry Potter. She's sleeping under the closet stairs. And Phillotson's like, well, what are you doing, freak? What are you doing? Is this my fault that I do something? I've given you everything. Why are you behaving like this? Why are you sleeping under the stairs when you could be up in our brass bed? Lay, lady, lay, lay upon our big brass bed. And she is saying, no, I can't. I can't. And it's not your fault. And it's not even my fault. It's the universe's fault. He's like, I don't even know what to say. What, what if the servant should hear? What if the parsons were to come round and see us acting eccentrically in this manner? What would they think? Harry Potter, what would they think? They would think, they would think you are magical. And it's, uh, you know, she's distraught. I don't blame her. But in a sense, she really does have nobody to blame but herself. Right. I mean, she's blaming the whole world. But when you blame the whole world, who are you really blaming? I mean, who are you really blaming? On rising the next morning, he immediately looked into the closet. But Sue had already gone downstairs. Oh, I see. The closet was upstairs. But she'd gone down. So it was like a little linen closet on the second floor. There was a little nest where she had lain. And spider's webs hung overhead. What must a woman's aversion be? When it is stronger than her fear of spiders, he said bitterly. Right, she'd rather sleep with spiders than with him. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, if that doesn't tell you something, Richard, I don't know what will. You know, maybe, maybe it's on you to be the bigger man here and say, hey, Sue, I don't feel like this is working. You know, I gave you, I did what I could. I bought you birch furniture. And, and a bed, I got you a job, and we live here in, in this house, and no matter what I do, you just seem miserable. So maybe it's on him. Maybe it's on him to, to figure something out. He found her sitting at the breakfast table, and the meal began almost in silence. The burgers walking past upon the pavement, or rather roadway, pavements being scarce here, which was two or three feet above the level of the parlor floor. They nodded down to the happy couple their morning greetings as they went on. Richard, she said all at once, 
Would you mind my living away from you? Bold. Away from me? Why, that's what you were doing when I married you. What, would the, what then was the meaning of marrying at all? You wouldn't like me any better. The, you wouldn't like me any the better for telling you. I don't object to know. Because I thought I could do nothing else. You had got my promise a long time before that, remember? Then, as time went on, I regretted I had promised you and was trying to see an honorable way to break it off. But as I couldn't, I became rather reckless and careless about the conventions. Then you know what scandals were spread and how I was turned out of the training school you have taken such time and trouble to prepare me for and got me into. And this frightened me. And it seemed then that the one thing I could do would be to let the engagement stand. Of course, I, of all people, ought not to have cared what was said, for it was just what I fancied I never did care for. But I was a coward, as so many women are, and my theoretic unconventionality broke down. If that had not entered into the case, it would have been better to have hurt your feelings once for all then than to marry you and hurt them all my life after. And you were so generous in never giving credit for a moment to the rumor. I am bound in honesty to tell you that I weighed its probability and inquired of your cousin about it. Ah, she said with pained surprise. I didn't doubt you, but you inquired. I took his word. Her eyes had filled. He wouldn't have inquired, she said. <laughs> so she's, she's basically saying he's a better man than you, Richard Phillotson. Oh, but you haven't answered me. Will you let me go away? I know how irregular it is of me to ask it. It is irregular, but I do ask it. Domestic laws should be made according to temperaments, which should be classified. If people are at all peculiar in character, they have to suffer from the very rules that produce comfort in others. Will you let me? But we married. What is the use of thinking of laws and ordinances, she burst out, if they make you miserable when you know you are committing no sin? But you are committing a sin in not liking me. I do like you. But I didn't reflect that it would be so much more than that. For a man and woman to live on intimate terms when one feels as I do is adultery in any circumstances, however legal. There, I've said it. Will you let me, Richard? You distress me, Susanna, by such importunity. Why can't we agree to free each other? We made the compact, and surely we can cancel it. Not legally, of course, but we can morally, especially as no new interests in the shape of children have arisen to be looked after. Then we might be friends, and meet without pain to either. Oh, Richard, be my friend and have pity. We shall both be dead in a few years, and then what will it matter to anybody that you relieved me from constraint for a little while? I dare say you think me eccentric or supersensitive or something absurd. Well, why should I suffer for what I was born to be if it doesn't hurt other people? But it does hurt. It hurts me. And you vowed to love me. Yes, that's it. 
I am in the wrong. I always am. It is as culpable to bind yourself to love always as to believe a creed always, and as silly as to vow always to like a particular food or drink. And do you mean, by living away from me, living by yourself? Well, if you insisted, yes. But I meant living with Jude. Wow. So she's just saying it now. She's just saying it. It is adultery for me to sleep with you when I am in love with Jude. I mean, page by page, I go back and forth on Sue. I started by saying, what up? And then I used a terrible word that I shouldn't have said, but I was mad at her. And now I have to retract it again because she's being incredibly honorable here. And she is just laying it all out on the table for him. And, but she, and she is asking for his consent to do so. Which, you know, that's tough stuff. That's tough stuff for anybody to do. When I asked Martha if I could live with my secret family for a little while, she flatly refused. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis. Go green with solar panels or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome back to Obscure. Michael Ian Black, your dear reader here, and Sue has just told Mr. Phillotson that she would rather sleep in a closet than with him, and even more bravely, that she wants to live with Jude, and that is where we left off. So she says, but I meant living with Jude as his wife, as I choose. Phillotson writhed. Sue continued, she or he, and this is a quote that she's saying, who lets the world or his own portion of it choose his plan of life for him has no need of any other faculty that the ape-like one of imitation. J.S. Mill's words, those are, I have been reading it up. Why can't you act upon them? I wish to always. What do I care about J.S. Mill, moaned he. <laughs> I only want to lead a quiet life. Do you mind my saying that I have guessed what never once occurred to me before our marriage, that you were in love and are in love with Jude Folly? You may go on guessing that I am since you have begun, but do you suppose that if I had been, I should have asked you to let me go and live with him? Yeah. Wait, I, I wait, wait, she, wait, what? Is she saying she's not in love? That she just wants to live with him? What is she saying? You may go on guessing that I am since you have begun. Okay. So, right. Keep guessing that I am. But do you suppose that if I had been, I should have uh, oh, asked you to let me go and live with him, meaning I would have asked for your permission. I don't know what she's saying here. She's saying, I want to live with Jude, but I don't love him. I want to live with Jude, but I do love him. Like, what is she saying here? The ringing of the school bell saved Phillotson from necessity, from the necessity of replying at present. 
to what apparently did not strike him as being such a convincing argumentum advertandium as she in her loss loss of courage at the last moment. Okay, so she's denying it. But that doesn't make any sense at all, obviously. She, you know, she's chickening out of saying, she's just saying, I know, I just want to live with the guy. I don't love him. How could I love him? You think I would have asked, if I was in love with him, do you think I would have asked permission? No, I know. Look, expenses are high and I just want to live with the dude who was holding my hand the other day and who there were rumors about that I was sleeping with. Uh, but no, I mean, obviously there's nothing going on between us. She was beginning to be so puzzling and unstatable that he was ready to throw in with her other little peculiarities the extremist request which a wife could make. They proceeded to the schools that morning as usual, Sue entering the classroom, where he could see the back of her head through the glass partition whenever he turned his eyes that way. As he went on giving and hearing lessons, his forehead and eyebrows twitched from concentrated agitation of thought, till at length he tore a scrap from a sheet of scribbling paper and wrote, Your request prevents my attending to work at all. I don't know what I am doing. Was it seriously made? He folded the paper, piece of paper very small, and gave it to a little boy to take to Sue. The child toddled off into the classroom. Phillotson saw his wife turn and take the note, and the bend of her pretty head as she read it, her lips slightly crisped to prevent undue expression under fire of so many young eyes. He could not see her hands, but she changed her position, and soon the child returned, bringing nothing in reply. In a few minutes, however, one of Sue's class appeared with a little note similar to his own. These words only were penciled therein. I am sincerely sorry to say that it was seriously made. <sighs> I guess we could stop there. Um, so she's asking to break up the marriage. She's saying, I made a mistake. I'm, I want to live somewhere else with somebody else, somebody, you know, I'm not in love with him, obviously, but clearly she's in love with him. And it's a, uh, you know, it's a sad state of affairs. Uh, remember when I said, I hope this whole thing ends with a murder suicide. Well, I had always thought, well, it'll be Jude who commits the murder-suicide, but maybe it'll be Phillotson. Maybe it'll be Sue. I don't know. How great would it be, though, you know, if the whole thing ends in a bloodbath? Jack. 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 Wouldn't it be great if the whole thing ended in a bloodbath? He seems indifferent to that outcome. Um, now we're really in the meat of it. We're on the, we're on the back nine here. You know, we're playing for the championship. We're trying to make a bunch of birdies here. The golf metaphor that makes no sense at all. There's no golf metaphor in this whatsoever. So I just kind of want to know what happens next. I mean, that's really all I'm thinking about right now. Like, what what, what is going to happen? She said, can I go live with my cousin? Uh, Phillotson's like, you weren't serious. She wrote a note. They're passing notes back and forth. She's like, yeah, I kind of was. And now we don't know what's going to happen. Will he grant the request? Will he deny it? Will he chain her to a radiator like Samuel Jackson did to some girl in that movie? What's going to happen? We don't know, but we're excited. I'm speaking for you. We are excited to continue this journey. I'm literally on the edge of my seat here at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library 
on the reading throne. Jack himself is on the edge of his seat, his head dangling over the lip of the throne, looking down onto the rug. My hand once again, stroking his black velvety ears, as I wish you a fond adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedgren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hold on, they say, Spanish Aki Presents. Presents.